All right, so over the last nine weeks, seven of those last weeks, we've been dealing with what we've been calling FBC's um, mission and values. And my goal today is to look at the two aspects of our mission statement and the four core values that we hold and, um, and kind, try and tie them together to, to, to answer the so what question. What does that mean for us? Um, not for, I've been handing these papers out um, throughout this series. You may or may not have seen one. Um, they're not in the bulletin, but they've they just been back at the table. So I don't know if there's any left. If you, if you didn't get one or you want one, just email Connie. Um, not me. No, you can email me, and, um, and I'll get you one, or I'll email something. But um, we finally have a filled-out one that's been mostly blanks, and I've just been gradually filling these out as we've been going through the different values and, um, and, and mission of our church. And so now we have them all together, and um, I'm going to try and communicate them in a way that helps us make sense and know what that means for us as individuals and as a church. The mindset of being on mission. Our mission statement, I don't know if you have it memorized. It's really not a hard one, so memorize it. So I'm going to give you a bunch more to memorize in a minute. I'm trying to simplify it as, as best I can. But it's the mission of the First Baptist Church is to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus who love God and people. All right? And so as we look at that mission statement, well, what, what we kind of did is we took it and we looked at two elements of the mission statement, an upward element and an outward element. The upward element um, we called fully devoted. So I'm just going to summarize everything quickly here. And that's an element that primarily you could categorize, if you want to use theological terms, it's a category of worship. It's an upward posture of worship toward God. Worship is not a mere activity, but an orientation that loves and values God above all things. True worship is a heart condition. The activities of worship are demonstrations of the reality of our heart condition. And that's what, we want, that's what we want to produce here when we talk about to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus. We want, to, we want to produce people who are so in love with Jesus that it overflows into actions. Now, those actions can be faked. People who don't truly love Jesus can, can put off those actions, but the heart can't be faked, and God knows. Therefore, we must have a more accurate picture of the glory, goodness, truth and beauty of God that we might do like the man who found the treasure in the field Matthew 13 and it says then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field I'm going to mention a bunch of verses as we go Um, you could just jot down the references if you want to keep them or you could email me later and ask me what they were I'm not putting them on the screens but I'll be going quickly but I want to pause there on that, on that verse just for a second before I move forward. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus says this is, this is what it looks like for there to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Now ask yourself, first of all, what is that treasure? Well, the treasure is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the most beautiful, valuable, glorious praiseworthy thing in all of creation and he wants to be found and when you find him would you sell all you have for him would my retirement my bank account my property my toys my guitars 
would, would all of that pale in comparison to the treasure that is Jesus? That's what we want to produce. It's fully devoted followers of Jesus who love him above all other things. Now, I'm not saying that you have to sell all you have. Maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if I stepped before Jesus like the rich young ruler and said, what must I do? And he, what would he tell me? Would he say, sell all you have, give it to the poor and follow me? And if he did, would I? Well, I'm not there. We're not there. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at where we should be. The second element of the mission statement is the outward element, or I like to categorize it and put it in the category of discipleship. And this is a little bit harder to communicate. It's, we, we use the phrase discipling community. It's harder to communicate because it's not clearly in our mission statement like fully devoted is. It's kind of implied. The outward element of, of our mission is, is a posture of love through togetherness. Loving God is primary, but is barely separable from loving people. Brian McIntyre spoke about this when he talked about being fully devoted. That being fully devoted to God and not loving to people is kind of a misnomer. Let me give you an illustration. There's a lot of illustrations I could use, but when I was younger, and I realized that this illustration might make me look bad, because I'm not like this anymore. Sorry. But when... Maybe I should repent right now. Um, but when I was younger um, and I was first dating Kristen, um, I used to love buying Christmas presents. But something that I really loved was, was, was to try to figure out what the perfect Christmas present is. And not just the perfect Christmas present, but the perfect Christmas present that I found out she wanted, but she didn't even know she wanted you ever get that present for somebody when they open it and they're so surprised because they didn't realize they wanted it, but it's perfect in there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> then that guys, isn't that what you want when they open up the presents? You're just like, ah. <laughs> and so I love, I love that. I love trying to do that. But what does it take to do that? It, it's not an easy task. So, so I love her. So, so I want to please her with what made, made her happy. So what does this mean? It meant that I had to get to know her. I'd have to know which, what, what is she like. What makes her happy? Not only that, but I had to start to learn to love the things that she loves. Now you might think that maybe that's not that important, but it is. You um, guitar players out there. You know, if, if I said, I really like you, and so I'm going to buy you a guitar... What are you going to do? Even among guitar players, we'd probably go, no, 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 no. Because with the things that I really love, what? I'm also really picky about them. I don't want you buying a guitar for me. You'll probably buy me the wrong guitar. You know, you're not going to buy the one that I want. So don't do that because this is something I really love. So if I really loved Kristen, I really want to get her that perfect gift, I had to find out what she loved. And I had to learn to love it in such a way that I could look for it with her eyes. Now, what does that illustration have to do with discipling community? I believe the same goes for God. If we say we love God and remain indifferent to the things that God says he loves, then we at best prove ourselves hypocrites, and at worst reveal that we don't even really love God. I love you, God, and I'm sure you love some things, but whatever, you, lo- you know I love you. Th- check out the songs I'm singing, you know. Check out the money I put in the offering plate. Check that out. I love you. 
Who do you, oh, never mind, it doesn't matter who you love. I love you. See, that doesn't, that doesn't work. If we really love God, we find out what he loves. And this is why we use the phrase discipling community. If I love God, then I want to love his body. I want to love his bride. What are those, what, those are things that scripture talks about God deeply loving his body, his bride. And we use those terms, those are metaphors for what? For his church. So I want to love his church a lot because he gave his life for the church. I want to love the outcast, the orphan, the widow, the helpless, my neighbor, the world. If I love others, then I want what's best for them. And what is best for them is to join me in being a lover of Jesus. This is what we want to produce. Fully devoted followers of Jesus who would take up their cross and lay down their lives and sell their possessions to have that treasure. And they want to see others join in that because it's what's best for them. That's the mission of First Baptist Church. Now, I do have to say before I move on, of these six categories that we're talking about, two aspects of the mission and the four values, each of them we could probably do like a 10-week series on. So I understand that, that I'm summarizing in a very shallow way that we could probably go into elements of each of these that are very deep and complex. But on the surface, this is what we're trying to produce. We have four values. Um, and of course, there'd be subcategories of values that we can talk about if we had more time. I could put them in theological terms. Um, we have the value of theology, a value of sanctification, a value of fellowship, and a value of evangelism. But what we, what we did is we tried to come up with cute little phrases to help us remember them. Because it's important to remember them. And I'll talk about in a minute why, why it's important to remember this stuff. The first value under the category of theology is the value that we're saying communicating the word. We're starting all these phrases with the letter C to help us. I should have you repeat them with me, but no, I won't do that. Luke 16, verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you believe that, or is that just silliness? You know, we do our religious thing. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's talking about our Bibles here, the Word of God. It's easier for creation to be undone than for this book to, to fade away. I'm talking about this physical, literal book, but the Word of God. You understand? This is not just another library book. You know? This is not just a, just a newspaper article with periodics and, 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 and blogs and things like that. Jesus said it's easier for a creation to be undone than for this word to pass away. He says it again in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now listen closely. This is why this value is so important. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them to be called great in the king, um, te- I'm sorry, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If this is the way that Jesus views the Bible, then we must make it a priority to know, handle, 
and apply Scripture accurately. Now, we use the word communicating, not just teaching or commanding, if you want to use a C word, you know. We use the word communicating. And that is because the Bible does not merely tell us things that it wants us to know. It commands us to do something with what we claim to know. Dr. William Larkin says, he's a seminary professor, he says that exegesis, that's the practice of communicating the Word of God, of drawing out the truth from Scripture. Exegesis, to be true to the intention of the writer, must include application. Now, this isn't a unique thought to Dr. Larkin. After all, James said it in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so at FBC, we want you to be blessed, right? This is an important book that's more important than creation itself, and we want you to be blessed, right? And so we have to put a high value on communicating the word, which means knowing it and applying it. We want to be communicators. When people look at our lives, we want to say, what what is FBC about? These are people who are living epistles. These are people who are communicating the Word of God, both in their understanding of it and their actions out from it. So our first value is communicating the Word of God. Our second is committed to Jesus. This could be the category of sanctification. Broader than that, but I'm just kind of giving general umbrella picture. Philippians 1.6 Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These are cute little phrases here. You ever listen to that, hear that verse? You've heard that verse before, I'm sure. But he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So ask yourself this question. If I don't see myself becoming more and more like Jesus, you have two options there. Either Paul's lying to you, Right? Or what? Or he didn't begin a good work in you. I don't believe Paul's lying. Therefore, this is really important. It's really important that we see ourselves being conformed into the likeness of Christ. I hope he began a good work in me. I hope he began a good work in you. And if he did, he promises that he's going to bring it to completion. And God doesn't lie. How does he do that? Philippians 2, verse 12, Paul goes on. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God's intent that we continually become more and more like Jesus in how our lives reflect God's glory. This is a work of personal discipline as well as God's miraculous work within us. God helps through the Holy Spirit as well as gives spiritual gifts that he intends to use in each one of us uniquely to do the ministry we're called to. At FBC, we want to help people develop spiritual disciplines as well as assist you in discovering your own spiritual gifts and helping you to find avenues to exercise those spiritual gifts. I hope you're agreeing with me that this is important stuff. These aren't just cute truths that we can agree with. But these are things that we put our lives into. This is what we want to be about at this church. 
We want to be people who communicate the word of God. We want to be people who are committed to Jesus, becoming like him. Third, we want to be people who are connected to the family. We put that under the category of fellowship. You probably heard me read this verse a dozen times in the past few years, but it's too good for me not to read it again. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a complex and profound reality, but God does not intend for us to live this life alone. We need fellowship. And he doesn't command fellowship because he sees us as weak and needy. He designed us that way. It's a good thing. If we deny our need for fellowship, we deny our creator. We need fellowship for teaching, growth, encouragement, training, witness. Fellowship is both uh, preparation for witness and it is a witness itself. And on and on, we need fellowship. There are few to no areas of the Christian life that are intended to be done alone. When we try to live the Christian life apart from fellowship, not only do we severely handicap ourselves, but we undermine a key demonstration of God's very character. The Bible prioritizes fellowship of believers above our preferences, above our non-essential convictions, above national identity, above racial identity, and even our biological family if necessary. God forbid that it is necessary, but when Scripture puts fellowship of believers above that. First Baptists must continually seek ways to help believers who commit to this congregation to grow in a oneness and love that builds up within and proclaims outwardly. So we're going to be fully devoted followers of Jesus who will lay down our lives and call others to join us in a reproducing way called discipleship. People who are founded on and communicating the word. People who are committed to Jesus becoming more like them. And people who are connected to the family to grow in oneness. And lastly, we have the value of evangelism, which is a broad, very broad topic, but we're putting in the phrase, compassion for all peoples. You guys memorizing this yet? You know? Communicating the word, committed to Jesus, connected to the family, compassion for peoples. I'm trying to make it easy. (laughs) My favorite quote that undergirds this value would be, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Basically, there are people all around the globe who do not see Jesus at all, and others who do not see Jesus correctly. If they did, they would rejoice in all things and set Jesus above all things. Our job is to do what we can to create more and more lovers of Jesus through missions, evangelistic efforts, and charitable gestures. FBC intends to equip people for this task through training and opportunity. So we are fully devoted. I, mean, I know I keep saying it because I want you to memorize it. I said that, right? But we be fully devoted worshipers in a discipling community that's reproducing more worshipers who are communicating the word of God in our knowledge and actions, 
who are committed to Jesus becoming more like him, who are connected to family, leaning on one another, and have a compassion for people that explodes into evangelism and missions and charity. In a nutshell, that is the vision, that is the mission and values of this church. Now, why is it important? And this is something leadership should know, right? Ultimately, Jesus gives the primary mission and value in Matthew 28. We merely try to flesh this statement out in order to guide us in all of its implications. Matthew 28, start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the mission of the church. This is not just the mission of missionaries and missions agencies. This is the mission of the church. And why is it important? Why am I saying it's important for all of you to know this, to own this, to assume this. By keeping these concepts before our eyes and always on our minds, we accomplish several things. First, we can clearly focus on things that we are to put all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength into. You ever get up on a Saturday and just kind of go, hmm, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Some of you guys might be very organized and you have your to-do list, but am I the only one? I need some nods or bobbleheads or something. <laughs> okay, it's because we don't, we, don't, we don't, often on Saturdays, we don't have a mission. We don't have a plan. We don't have a, a, a type of vision set out before us. By keeping our focus on a mission, it helps give us direction. We don't just sit here and wander and go, huh, let's do some Jesus stuff. I'm not sure what that is. Let's just kind of do it. No, we ask ourselves, is this, a, is this about communicating the word? Is this activity about uh, being connected to the family? Is this about being committed to Jesus? Is this about having compassion for all people? It gives us focus and helps, us, helps direct us in the things we choose to do. With this, secondly, we are better able to prioritize the things that are a clear part of our mission and values as well as eliminate things that are not. So by knowing this, we can focus, but by knowing this, we also can prioritize and say, this is important. Why? Because we set up a mission and values of who we are and what we're called to do, and we believe that these are biblical. And thirdly, we can better measure the ministries and activities that we are engaged in to determine fruitfulness. Measuring a church based on its mission and values is much better than what most do. That sounds judgmental. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but it's probably true. Most probably judge by attendance and, and an offering, you know. How's your church doing? What you're really saying is, do you have a lot of people who give a lot? You know, that's not the most biblical way. I mean, that would be a good thing. I'd love to have a lot of people who give a lot. It would enable and explode into all kinds of creative ministries. But the best way to measure ministries is, do we have people who are communicators of the word? Yes, then, we're, then we're, we, are, we are accomplishing our mission. Do we have people who are becoming more like Jesus, who are committed to Jesus? Yes, we're competent. You know, measure our ministries of where our shortcomings are and where our goals will, will come into play based on these biblical things, not just attendance and giving. So if these missions and values are biblical, if these missions and values are ours and we want to put them before our face so that we can, we can focus and prioritize and, um, and measure... What does this kind of posture look like in an individual or a church? Dr. Ralph Winter, 
He's the founder of the Order for World Evangelization and the director of Frontier Mission Fellowship, calls this the wartime lifestyle. And I'm going to reference some of his quotes in, in, in the rest of this message here. First, he talks about the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary was a ship that was used during World War II for um, some of the war efforts. It's now docked in California as a, as a kind of museum. And Ralph Winter writes about this. The Queen Mary lying in repose in the harbor at Long Beach, California, is a fascinating museum of the past. Used both as a luxury liner in peacetime and a troop transport during the Second World War, its present status as a museum the length of three football fields affords a stunning contrast between the lifestyles appropriate in peace and war. On one side of a partition, you see the dining room reconstructed to depict the peacetime table setting that was appropriate to the wealthy patrons of high culture for whom a dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons held no mysteries. On the other side of the partition, the evidences of wartime austerities are in sharp contrast one metal tray with indentations replaces 15 plates and saucers. Bunks eight tiers high explain how the peacetime capacity of 3,000 passengers gave way to 15,000 troops on board at wartime. How repugnant to the peacetime masters this transformation must have been. To do it took a national emergency, of course. The survival of a nation depended upon it. I wonder, is, is the American church in need of a, transportation, a transformation? Is FBC in need of a transformation? I'm not trying to be provocative, but as soon as I lose the courage to ask the question, I've already lost the battle. You see, when you view yourself as in a fight, you structure your life much differently. The question is, how does the Bible describe the Christian life? Is it described more as a peacetime life or a wartime life? Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Oh, but, but didn't Jesus speak about peace? Oh, well, yes, he did, so let's look at some of those. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace. I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why would Jesus tell them not to be troubled or afraid? It's because the peace that Jesus gives is not a wimpy peace that gives us a pass from the battle, but a glorious peace that reminds us of the guaranteed victory while we suffer through the battle. Even John 16, Jesus goes on, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There are multitudes of verses that speak to taking up your cross, to suffering, to persecution, trials, and tribulation, to being hated. These are all things described as part of the normal and obedient Christian life. In fact, I wonder that if we're not experiencing these things, 
Can this be an indicator that our lives are not normal or obedient? Work that out. I don't know what the clear answer is, but work that out. The Bible does talk about peace in this life, but it is almost always about an inner peace rooted in trust and hope. Trust that the casualties and loss in this life are purposeful, meaningful, and work towards something greater beyond our vision. Hope in the promises that God is working all things out for our good and preparing a place for us, a place where death is eliminated, tears are wiped away, and sickness and sin are no more. Dr. Winter continues in describing what can be accomplished if this kind of prioritization took hold of whole organizations. He writes, The 8,000 members of the Friends Missionary Prayer Band in South India support 80 full-time missionaries in North India. If my denomination, which I don't know what Ralph Winter's denomination is, but he said if my denomination with its unbelievably greater wealth per person were to do that well, we would not be sending 500 missionaries but 26,000. In spite of their true poverty, these Indian believers are proportionally giving 50 times more cross-cultural missionaries than we are. The statistics are always embarrassing. We spend as much on chewing gum annually as we do on missions. Our annual giving to foreign missions is equal to the amount we spend in a 52-day period on pet food. What are the dangers of not viewing the Christian life as a wartime life? What are the dangers of not keeping our mission and values straight? There's at least two that I'll mention. First, fruitlessness. That is having nothing to show for it. Revelation 2.5, Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus. He says, remember, therefore... From where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It is possible for God to get to a point with a person or a church or a nation where he says, No longer will you be my representative. You've used your last chance and chosen yourself over my will. 1 Corinthians 3.14 If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. It is possible for someone to be saved, but with nothing to show for it. I don't know exactly what this means, but as for me and my desire for First Baptist... I prefer to approach the throne of God with a multitude of crowns to lay at at Jesus' feet that we see in Revelation 4.10. If we don't keep our mission and values straight, we can have fruitless lives that don't have anything to show for it at the end. We'll put our treasure in other places besides heaven like Jesus warned us to. The second danger, first fruitlessness, second falseness. A self-deception about your eternal security. It's possible that people can be active in the community of believers only to find that their assumed salvation isn't real. Matthew 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, so the weeds appeared also. 
So this parable tells us that amidst the congregation of believers, there will be those who are not actually part of the kingdom of God. That's a frightening thought. But it's in the Bible. I can't ignore it. Matthew 7, Jesus says it even more more directly. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he says some scary things as far as what that looks like. This is absolutely a frightening reality, but it is clear in the Bible, so I cannot neglect it here. So aligning our lives with the will of God, realizing that there is a battle with eternal consequences happening, is foundational to the ministry of the local church. This is important. This is not just a leadership thing that we know what our mission and our values are. Every one of you need to know what this is about. We're not just gathering to hear a good, a good message and some good songs. We're trying to be people who communicate the word, who are committed to Jesus, who are connected to the family and have compassion for the peoples. Dr. Rittner, Winter, conclu- um, his conclusion, we must learn that Jesus meant it when he said, unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. I believe that God cannot expect less from us in our Christian duty to save other nations than we in wartime require of ourselves to save our own nation. To reconsecrate ourselves to a wartime lifestyle will involve a mammoth upheaval evil for a significant minority, but with ends as noble as the Great Commission, a wartime lifestyle is an idea whose time has come. In the third century, one of our church fathers, Cyprian, from North Africa, had this observation about the church, and I find it profound. This wasn't originally in my notes, but I listened to a man speak Friday night, and I said, I have got to add that to my notes. (laughs) But listen to how Cyprian puts it. It is not persecution alone that we ought to fear, not those forces that in open warfare range abroad, to overthrow and defeat the servants of God. It is easy enough to be on one's guard when the danger is obvious. One can stir up one's courage for the fight when the enemy shows himself in his true colors. There is more need to fear and beware of the enemy when he creeps up secretly, when he beguiles us by a show of peace and steals forward by those hidden approaches which have earned him the name the serpent. Those whom he has failed to keep In the blindness of their old ways, he beguiles and leads them up a new road of illusion. He snatches away people from within the church herself, and while they think that coming close to the light, they have now done with the night of the world. He plunges them unexpectedly into darkness of another kind. They still call themselves Christians after abandoning the gospel of Christ and the observance of his law. Though walking in darkness, they think they still enjoy the light. This is, this, is, this is serious. A wartime analogy will fall short if taken too far. But it is probably the best one for being in line with the commands of the Bible. I believe David Platt summarized it well when I heard him speak on Friday night, saying, The gospel demands a decision. Will you turn from Jesus? Live without Christ now. Die without Christ forever? Or will you turn to Jesus, die with Christ now, live with Christ forever? Take what you will from that quote. It's thoroughly biblical. So our mission and values in battle. What does FBC's mission and value look like in battle? In battle, our eyes must be so fixed on the prize so convinced of the purpose that we can run to the front lines confidently. 
No one kind of runs to the front lines. No one kind of jumps out of a plane. You're in it or you're not. We are totally devoted. In battle, we know that the fight is bigger than ourselves. We seek the training from seasoned soldiers. We encourage enlistment of others to fight alongside us. We go out together knowing that everyone has everyone's back. We are a discipling community. In battle, we must understand what we are fighting for, who our enemy is, what the plan is, what our roles are, how we are to fight, and what weapons we are to use and not use. We are a church that is communicating the word. In battle, we must be in our best shape for the fight, throwing off distractions, focusing on our mission, responding obedient to our commander, and training vigorously for our task. We are a church that is committed to Jesus. In battle, we lean on many others, whether through caring for casualties, clothing soldiers, sacrificing for provisions, encouraging the demoralized, creating resources, and so on. We are a church that is connected to the family. In battle, we believe that our fight is right and good and desirable. Therefore, we win others to our cause. We win our neighbors, our fellow countrymen, our families, even our enemies, that the fight may not last longer than it ought to. We are a church that has compassion for all peoples. You guys getting that? Are you memorizing it? That's what we're trying to produce. Fully devoted followers of Jesus who take up their crosses and follow Jesus, selling all they have and buying that treasure in the field. Who are multiplying others by being a discipling community. Who are communicating the word in their knowledge and action. Who are committed to Jesus in their sanctification and purity. Who are connected to the family in mutual support and encouragement. And who have compassion for all peoples in outreach. That's what we're trying to do here. Not just play games. If we cannot see the battle that we are in, we will waste our lives. FBC's mission and values intend to prepare us for this biblical reality. If we aren't sure that there is a battle that we are to be fighting, consider this simple reasoning by George Ladd, a seminary professor in the mid-20th century. He says, I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So as long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for giving us your word, your spirit, your family. We thank you for enabling us with gifts and tasks, giving us the dignity of working for eternal things. We thank you for all these things. Let us not be trivial with them. Let us not hold these lightly, but let us carry these seriously. Let us not be blind to the fight around us. Let us be about the business of disciple-making. Let us be about the business of of glory-proclaiming. And then let us rest in the peace and the place that you've gone to prepare for us. I pray that First Baptist would be a church that truly glorifies you, is fully devoted to you. I pray this for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.